Well, this evening we are considering the topic of Christ, our mediator. So once again, we are going through the Second London Baptist Confession, which uh, our church has formally adopted as its confession as of earlier this year. We made it through the first seven chapters. This week we've come to chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2 in verse 5. We read these words from the Apostle Paul. He says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. So what is a mediator? What does a mediator do? Well, certainly we use the term mediator in different ways in our own day and time. Uh, There are Times when a lawyer functions as a mediator between two different parties who are attempting to reach an agreement. There are times when parents become mediators between two selfish toddlers who are fighting over a toy. Uh, There are any number of situations in our day and age in which a mediator is required to bring together two parties who are currently at odds with one another or at enmity with one another. John Ruther defines a mediator as one who comes between two parties to arbitrate and remove the enmity. A mediator comes into a situation where there is hostility, there is enmity, there is conflict, there is disagreement, and the mediator enters into that situation for the purpose of arbitrating, bringing about a resolution between the two sides, and removing the enmity. Well, the Bible speaks about Christ, as we've just read in 1 Timothy 2, as the one mediator between God and man. The only mediator between God and sinful man. And he's a mediator because there is mutual hostility that exists between a holy God and sinful mankind, according to their sinful nature. On the one hand, God is at enmity with us in our sin. And yet... Christ, he enters into the relationship and he removes God's hostility by removing the sin that creates it toward us. So so as mediator, Christ enters into a situation in which God is hostile toward us because of his wrath and he removes that enmity, the hostility of God, in order to establish peace on God's part toward us. But at the same time, Christ is also a mediator For us toward God. He removes the enmity that exists not just from God toward us. He removes the enmity that exists from us toward God. Naturally, we are at enmity with God. Our hearts are hostile toward him. And so Christ enters into the situation, the relationship between sinful man and a holy God. And he changes sinful man's hostility into peaceful love. He establishes peace, not just between God and man, but also between man and God. He removes the enmity. He removes the hostility. He gives us new hearts that love God. And so he is the mediator 
He is the one who comes in and arbitrates and removes the enmity between a holy God and sinful man. So then, this doctrine of Christ as the mediator is at the very heart of the gospel. Without Christ as our mediator, we have no gospel. And without Christ as our mediator, therefore, we have no reconciliation with God. There could never be a restored relationship between sinful man and a holy God apart from this doctrine of mediator, apart from Christ as our mediator. So that's the topic for the chapter this evening, this doctrine of Christ as the mediator. If you notice on the bulletin, the chapters are on the inside. And if you notice, it's a whole book. It's very long. Ten paragraphs on Christ the Mediator. It's not the longest chapter in the Confession, but it's one of them. And we won't be able to go through all ten paragraphs tonight. And I'm not even going to make that attempt. So instead, if you turn over one more page on your bulletin and you go to the very back, there's the outline that we'll use for the teaching tonight. Uh, This admittedly doesn't contain every detail of what what the Confession summarizes with regard to the Bible's teaching on Jesus as the mediator. There are some things that I won't have time to get into that are in this chapter. But to the, as, as best I could, I tried to summarize and bring together the essential content of the doctrine of Christ as mediator. And so hopefully, if you were to go back later this evening or another time and read through the 10 paragraphs on this chapter, you would find that most of what's there we at least cover in some measure tonight. Uh, but I confess we won't be able to cover every detail. Um, So we're going to work through it then, uh, according to the outline on the bulletin there. There are four different headings, the person of the mediator, the offices of the mediator, the work accomplished by the mediator, and the redemption applied by the mediator. So what was uh, the teaching last week on? What was chapter 7 of the Confession about? Anybody? The doctrine of the covenant. Anthony, you weren't supposed to answer. It's on the doctrine of the covenant. And more specifically, which doctrine was it on? The doctrine of the covenant of grace, which was promised at the very beginning. Genesis 3. It was progressively revealed all the way until its establishment in the new covenant, in the New New Testament, in the person of Christ. And, and as we considered the covenant of grace last week, we saw that in the scriptures, Christ is the mediator of the covenant of God's grace with us. So under the, the covenant of works, who was our mediator? In the original covenant of works in the garden, who was the mediator between God and man? Adam. That's right. Adam was our mediator between God and man. If you remember, several chapters back, what happened to Adam happened to all of us. He was our representative. He represented us before God. So if Adam would have stood, then theoretically, we all would have stood with him. If Adam would have inherited the promise of life through obedience, then theoretically, we all would have inherited life through Adam. But Adam fell, and we all fell with him. And so what happened to Adam happened to all of us. We sinned in Adam's sin. We became guilty in Adam's guilt, and we inherited Adam's corruption. He was the mediator of that original covenant of works in the garden. But in this covenant of grace, Christ is the mediator. 
And in the same way that we fell in Adam's fall, with Christ as our mediator, we now stand in Christ's obedience. Because Christ obeyed, we inherit his righteousness. We are credited as obedient, as he represents us as our mediator before God. And so Christ is the mediator of the covenant of grace. We're really continuing the same topic from last week. And really, an argument could be made that for the next several weeks as we go through the confession, it's really just explaining what we looked at last week in the covenant of grace. It's an outworking of the covenant of grace in salvation. What does it actually look like for God to apply the covenant of grace in the lives of his people? Well, it begins, first of all, with a righteous mediator, Christ Jesus. And who is he? The person of the mediator. Who is the mediator that God has appointed to bring about reconciliation? If you notice there, three subpoints under the, the first heading. The mediator is fully God, he is fully man, and he is one person. Christ as our mediator is fully God. The scriptures clearly teach that Jesus is God. We uh, may be prone to take that for granted uh, because we generally hear often that Jesus is God. I'm not sure that uh, perhaps some of us come from contexts in which we learned that Jesus was not God, such as Jehovah's Witness, or uh, that he was not the only God, according to the Mormons, uh, or perhaps uh, uh, according to Islam, that Jesus is just a prophet. There are all kinds of religions out there that would deny the deity of Jesus. We take for granted that Jesus is God. And yet I wonder if someone pressed you on it and said, prove to me from the Bible that Jesus is God, where would you go? How would you demonstrate from the scriptures that your mediator is not just a man, but he's God? Because, as we'll see, our whole salvation depends on that. If Jesus, our mediator, is not God, then we have no saving mediator. We won't have time to get into all of the biblical arguments more than anything. I'm just wanting to press a little bit and ask, are you prepared to defend the deity of Jesus if you were asked about it? Not for the sake of being right, but out of love for whoever's asking the question. Are you prepared to tell them to make a defense of the hope that is in you by demonstrating the deity of Jesus? As a summary of the argument, we could, we could just say... We could go to scripture passages and demonstrate that Jesus is fully God from the passages that explicitly call him God. There are a number of passages that call Jesus God. John chapter 1, for example, or when Thomas uh, bows before Jesus, he calls him my Lord, my God. There are a number of passages we could go to that explicitly say Jesus is God. There are a number of passages we could go to where Jesus is given the names of God. He's given the same titles that God alone possesses. We could go to passages that talk about Jesus having the attributes of God. We see him living like and acting like only God can. He has the attributes of God. He's characterized by the things that only God is characterized by. We could go to the passages that talk about Jesus performing the works of God, such as creation. We could show that Jesus is God simply by the works that he does. Or we could go to passages where Jesus is worshipped as God. It doesn't take too much investigation into the Old Testament to see God shares his glory with nobody. He will not be co-worshipped with another God. He is God alone, and yet we see Jesus being worshipped on the pages of the scriptures. He is God. And so the scriptures are clear then that Jesus is 
fully God. But the scriptures are equally clear that Jesus is fully man. Probably the clearest passage on that is Philippians chapter 2. If you want to turn there with me, we'll read that. And we'll see what it says about the humanity of Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5, I'll just read a few of the verses here. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, by the way, that word form there does not just mean he, kind of, he was kind of like God, he kind of had the outward appearance of God. That word form could also be translated being, the very being of God. He existed as God, who, although... He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. He had every right to hold on to his deity uh, and all the privileges of it. He did hold on to his deity. He had every right to hold on to the privileges of his deity. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Jesus truly became a man who died. God cannot die, and yet Jesus died. He was truly man. He gave up his privileges as God. He retained his being as God, and yet he laid aside the eternal privileges by taking on human flesh and entering into our existence and truly became a man. And we see the genuineness of Jesus' humanity all throughout his ministry on the earth. Luke chapter 2 tells us Jesus grew. He grew as a child, but it says he grew in learning, grew in wisdom, he grew in stature, he grew in favor with men, he grew in favor with God. Jesus, like us, grew. He was a real man, a real child. Jesus experienced things like tiredness, hunger, and thirst. He experienced the effects of life in a fallen world, just like all of us do in our humanity. He was truly man. We could argue as well, if we wanted to prove the humanity of Jesus further, that the fact that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit as a man in his ministry demonstrates his humanity. He carried out his earthly ministry not merely as God. The miracles he performed the, the, the perfect life that he lived, he didn't live that merely as God. He lived that as a man, anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. So the, the true humanity of Jesus is all over the pages of the New Testament, just as his full deity is on the pages of the Scriptures. So he's fully God, he's fully man, and yet he is one person. Jesus isn't two people, obviously. He is one person. And in his one person, one thing that's important to note is that his deity is not mixed with humanity, and his humanity is not mixed with deity. In other words, when the two natures, the the deity and the humanity of Christ, when those two natures are united in the person of Christ, they're not united in the sense that they are mixed, so that Jesus somehow becomes a hybrid God-man. They are joined together in a way that while remaining one person, he is yet at the same time fully and truly unreduced deity, and he is truly and fully unreduced humanity in one person. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that our mediator, who restores us to God, 
Why is it important that he is one person who is both God and man? What difference does that make when it comes to his ability to redeem us? Well, let's start with the question, why must our mediator be fully God? Well, only an infinite God can bring fallen humanity back into relationship with an infinite God. Our sin has separated us an infinite distance from a pure and holy God. He is eternal, and the sin that we have committed then against an eternally holy God merits, it deserves for us, an eternal punishment in hell. That's why hell is described in the book of Revelation as a fire that burns continually and whose smoke continually and forever goes up. It doesn't know any end. Why is it that the punishment for our sin knows no end in eternity? It's because it is a sin committed against an infinite and eternal God. And a finite creature can't repay an eternal debt. And so hell must be eternal. This is the way Bruce Ware describes it. He says, if we pay for our own sin, we pay forever. And hence, there never comes a time when we can say, it is finished. It can never be said of us, the payment for our sin has been completed, and God's just demands against us are now fully satisfied. That can never be said if we are paying our own debt against an eternal God. And so as mere men and as mere women, we're not even capable of paying our own debt to an eternal God. So how much less then could a mere man pay the eternal debt of all of the redeemed? If there is a mediator who is going to pay an eternal debt for all of the redeemed, then that mediator must be of infinite and eternal worth. And the sacrifice that he offers to God must be an infinitely valuable sacrifice to pay an infinite debt for all of God's redeemed. And so God... Jesus, our mediator, must be fully God if he is going to fully pay for the sins of all of the redeemed. But he must also be fully man. Why must Jesus be fully man in order to redeem us? Well, just as only an infinite God can bring sinners back to God, so also only someone who is truly man can bring man back to God. It can be a substitute for them. If you go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17. We read these words about the true humanity of Jesus when it comes to his substitution for us. It says in verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He had to be made like his brethren in all things. He had to be just like us. He had to have flesh like ours. And he had to live life in this fallen world like we do. And he had to experience temptation in a humanity like ours. And he had to live a life of perfect obedience in a humanity like ours. And he had to suffer death in a humanity like ours. Because only if he did that in a humanity like ours could he redeem humanity. He had to be like the humanity that he was dying for. 
And so, if Jesus is to be our mediator, he must not only be fully God who absorbs the eternal wrath of a holy God for us, he must also be fully man who is truly like us in every way and can be our legitimate substitute in his life and death and resurrection. So as both God and man then, in one person, Jesus is perfectly suited to be our mediator. The second point on your outline, if you want to look there with me, is the offices of the mediator. The offices of the mediator. There are three offices listed there, prophet, priest, and king. So the concept of a mediator, it's not entirely new to the New Testament. Jesus Christ is not the only mediator spoken about in the Bible. He's the only true mediator. He's the only final mediator. He's the only ultimate mediator. But there were mediators between God and man throughout the Old Testament. There were people who were appointed by God to be representatives between God and his people. And the three offices of those mediators in the Old Testament were the offices of prophets, priests, and kings. Each of those was appointed by God to represent him in a way, or to represent God's people to him, to stand between God and his people, prophets, priests, and kings. So what was a prophet in the Old Testament? What was the role of a prophet? How was he a mediator to God's people? How was he a mediator between God and his people? Well, he was a mouthpiece of God. The the prophet had the task of speaking forth the word of God. He had the task of revealing whatever it was that God wanted to say to his people. He was a mouthpiece. And so prophets then represented God to the people as his spokespeople, as spokesperson. Apart from the prophets, God's people could not know God. There's no way to know God apart from general revelation. There's no way to know the specific will of God. There's no way to know the specific character of God or the promises of God or the threats of God or any other particular revelation of God apart from mouthpieces, apart from prophets. If God were going to make himself known to his people, he needed prophets. And so the prophets then, they represented God to men by revealing God to his people. They were mediators. Then the priests, what was the role of a priest? Well, a priest, if a prophet represented God to his people, then what did a priest do? They represented God's people to God. A prophet, in a sense, came from God to his people. A priest, in another sense, goes from God's people to God. He's another kind of mediator. In the Old Testament, when the high priest entered into the holy place on the Day of Atonement, he entered in with a breastplate. And what was written on that breastplate? Anyone know? I'm sure someone said the 12 tribes of Israel, right? When when the priest entered into the Holy of Holies, he entered in with a breastplate that had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel, God's people. Why? Why? What was the purpose of that? Well, it was a symbol, obviously. And what was it a symbol of? It was a symbol of the fact that when the priest entered into the presence of God, he was entering into the presence of God as a representative of God's people. He was standing there on behalf of God's people to offer sacrifices. And at the same time, he was standing there in the presence of God, on behalf of God's people, to petition God's mercy toward his people, to petition God's favor toward his people. And so the high priest then is a representative of God's people to God. 
And then there are kings, the third kind of mediator in the Old Testament. Kings were given the task of representing the rule and the authority of God over God's people. They were called not to make their own rules. They weren't called to come up with their own plans and ideas for the nation of Israel. The, the only calling of a king was to make sure that he was leading according to the laws and the commands of God. Because he was called to be a representative of God's authority, a reflection of God as the true king. He was a mediator to show God's people this is God's authority. Uh, I won't go there for the sake of time. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to 20, if you want to write that down. I don't think it's in the... That would, no, it's not in the notes, yeah. Uh, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20. That's a great passage that lays a foundation for the role of the king. It emphasizes the fact that the king is required to know the law of God and to rule according to it. He was to read the law every day. He was to write the law out for himself in its entirety and then read it every day and enforce it in the way that he led the nation of Israel. He was a mediator between God, the ultimate king, and God's people by representing the reign of of God over his people. Generally speaking, the overall condition of God's people depended on the king that ruled over them. So if you think about the history of the Old Testament, it is generally going to reflect the kind of king they were under. If Israel was led by a righteous king who enforced God's law in the right ways, his good and righteous law who led according to the commands of God, then Israel generally prospered and flourished as a nation. If Israel or Judah was under an unrighteous king, what happened? They generally suffered and the people rebelled against God in uh, in, in a reflection of the king that they were under. And, and so that if, you, if you read through the Old Testament, then the story of the Old Testament is essentially the story of a people longing for a righteous king, a king who will finally rightly represent the authority of God, someone who would be a good mediator as the representative of God's rule. Which person in the Old Testament, if you... Uh, know, know the answer, call it out. Which person in the Old Testament was a prophet, a priest, and a king at the same time? Melchizedek. That's a good one. I was going to say nobody, but you stumped me. I, it was supposed to be a trick question, but Melchizedek actually is. He's the king of righteousness and at the same time a priest and a prophet. Man, you stumped me, Bill. Good job. But he's a type of Christ. So, according to Hebrew, he may have even been Christ, according to a lot of people. So, uh, pre-incarnate. So anyway, Melchizedek aside, there was nobody in the Old Testament who was prophet, priest, and king. No one person could fulfill all three roles. Later, Hebrews 5 and 7 will say Melchizedek is not like the priests of Israel. He is a type of Christ, so he's an exception. So um, different, different thing. Very good answer. But there is no one person who fulfills all three roles in the Old Testament. Uh, in, the, in the nation of Israel. Why is that? Why would no one person fulfill the roles of prophet, priest, and king? And we, we know there are examples of kings who tried to function as priests, and uh, it didn't go well for them. God punished them as a result of that. Why is that? Well, I'm sure there are a number of reasons why uh, that 
was the case, perhaps the, the, the potential for misuse of all three offices, who knows, maybe a sense of checks and balances, I have no idea. But I think another reason is because we're meant to understand that there's only one person who can ever really fulfill all three roles. The Old Testament, it gives us certain kings and it gives us certain priests and it gives us certain prophets. They're all flawed. They all leave us longing for a better priest, a better king, and a better prophet. And in a sense, they leave us longing for one person who will perfectly fulfill all three of those functions in a way that fully satisfies all the needs of God's people. And the only person who does that, obviously, is Christ Jesus, the one mediator between God and man, who is prophet and priest and king. Jesus is the true prophet as our mediator. He is the one, if, if you're familiar with Moses' promise in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, he says that God is going to raise up a prophet like me. He's going to raise up a prophet like me. And he says, when that prophet comes, you must listen to him. Moses knew that they should listen to him as, as a prophet of God. But he heightens the authority of this one that's to come. He says, look, listen, don't just listen to me. This prophet who's going to come, that's the one you need to listen to. And then when we get to the book of Acts, chapter 3 and Acts chapter 7, one in Peter's sermon and another in Stephen's sermon, both of them reference Jesus as the fulfillment of Moses' promise that there would be a prophet raised up like Moses. They say Jesus is that prophet that was promised. He is the one who doesn't just merely represent God, or God, he's, he's not just mere, merely God's mouthpiece as a representative, but he is God. And so he is the full and perfect revelation of God. If a prophet's job is to reveal God to us, then Christ does that in an infinitely superior way to all other prophets before him. All other prophets declared the word of God, but Christ himself is the eternal word of God. And all other prophets spoke about a salvation that would come one day in the future. But Christ has fully revealed that salvation in himself. He is the fulfillment of all of that which the prophets spoke about. We could go to Hebrews 1 to see that, where it says that God spoke in many different ways in the past to our, to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken through his son. He has revealed to us everything that we need to know through the son. The son is the ultimate prophet, Christ Jesus. He's our mediator because he is the true prophet. He's also our mediator because he's the true priest. And so Jesus, like the priests of the Old Testament, he offers a sacrifice. But the sacrifice he offers is himself. He offers himself as the sacrifice as an offering for sin. And he doesn't have to go into the temple over and over again to offer the sacrifices. He offered himself up once and for all. If you have your Bible, you can open to, to Hebrews 7, verse 26. It speaks about the one-time offering of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is a far greater priest than the priests of the Old Testament because it was his 
one-time offering that was sufficient to pay the full price of our sin. And Jesus is a far greater priest than the priests of the Old Testament because he doesn't just enter into a temple, a physical building in Jerusalem, or even the Holy of Holies in that building in Jerusalem, but he enters into the true Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. If you flip over to Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 24, we read, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so he has entered into the true holy of holies in order to represent us there and present us there. And he doesn't just intercede one time a year, but as Hebrews 7, 25 says, he always lives constantly to make intercession for us. There is an unending priest who always lives to plead and secure the mercy of God on our behalf. Jesus is a far greater priest because he forever secures and intercedes the mercy of God on our behalf or pleads for it on our behalf. And then lastly, he is a far greater priest because he doesn't just enter the Holy of Holies on our behalf, but he enters the Holy of Holies on our behalf as our forerunner. What does a forerunner do? A forerunner runs before somebody else, right? But when a forerunner runs before somebody else, what, what's implied by that? That someone is following him to where he goes. He, he runs ahead with the understanding that there is someone following him at a later time to that place to which he runs. Well, Christ is called our forerunner. He went into the Holy of Holies to represent us, but he didn't just do that. He then brought us there with him so that we are now seated in the heavenly places, in the Holy of Holies, together with Christ. And that's seen in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We have confidence to enter the holy place. We don't just have confidence to call upon the one who is in the holy place, but we're actually told we have confidence to go there with him. We do that by faith now as we pray, but the new heavens and the new earth are described as the holy of holies. The place that you and I will live eternally is described as the very place where the fullness of God's presence dwells. And so Christ has entered for us into the Holy of Holies in heaven now, but we look forward to the day in which we live on an earth that is characterized as the fullness of God's presence with his people, the Holy of Holies on earth. And so Christ is our true and better mediator because he is the infinitely superior priest who brings us to God. And then lastly, for this section... Jesus is the true and better king. He is unlike any king before him. His reign is universal. It extends forever. The kings in Israel had reign over a territory on the earth. Jesus' reign extends over all territory, throughout all creation. Kings died one after another. Jesus will never die. The kingdom over which kings in the Old Testament reigned, it was subject to destruction to the exile. The kingdom over which Christ reigns is a kingdom which can never be destroyed, can never be overthrown. He has 
conquered all of his enemies, and he will one day subject all of them beneath his feet. He will overcome every enemy of his people, and his kingdom is a kingdom that will know no end. He's the far better king because he's righteous. He leads his people in righteousness. He, he leads his people by his righteous example as king, but he also leads us by bringing us into his righteousness. He makes his people righteous. He is a righteous king, and, and by leading in righteousness, he guarantees the unending endurance of God's kingdom. And so Jesus is the far greater prophet, the far greater priest, the far greater king. He's perfectly suited to be our mediator. He is perfectly suited to be our mediator. Because of our natural and sinful ignorance of God, we need a prophet who can perfectly reveal God to us. Jesus is the prophet. Because of our sinful nature and our alienation from God, we need a priest who can bring us back to God once and forever through a proper sacrifice and through proper intercession. And Jesus is that great priest that we need. And because of the rebellion of our own hearts, our own sinfulness, and because of the enemies of our soul all around us, the great enemy and every other enemy, we need a king who can subdue us in righteousness and who can overcome our enemies. And Christ is our king. So Christ is prophet, priest, and king. He's the exact mediator that we need. Then if you look in the third section there, the work accomplished by the mediator. So, so far we've seen the person of the mediator, who he is. We've seen the offices of the mediator, the titles under which he functions. But what is the actual work that the mediator accomplishes in his role? What does he do? Well, there are five aspects that I've listed there. First, he fulfills the law, his fulfillment of the law. So Galatians 4 Chapters 4 and 5, we're asking the question, what did Jesus need to do if he was going to be the mediator that we need? Not just who was he, but what did he need to do? First of all, he needed to fulfill the law. So Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. The first thing Jesus does is he fulfills the law. He's born under the law, and he perfectly fulfills the law throughout all the days of his life in order that he might rescue us from the curse of the law. Not only does he fulfill the law, but the next, his death under the curse. He dies under the curse of the law. So again, in Galatians, if you flip back to Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What did Christ need to do in order to be our mediator? He needed to fulfill the law perfectly. But then as the only one who ever perfectly fulfilled the law, he then had to die under the curse of the law that was owed to disobedience. And on the cross then, Jesus bore the curse of the law. He experienced a cursed death. Physically, he suffered in agony the hands of sinful men. But then spiritually, he suffered the full force of the wrath of his father. And we'll never know, of course, the full extent of what was in the cup of what Christ drank. We know that it caused him anguish in the garden to the point of sweating as if drops of blood. 
But we also know for certainty that whatever the full extent of that wrath was, which a human mind can never comprehend, whatever it was, when Christ died under the curse of the law, the cup was fully drank, and the wrath was fully quenched, and there was then no further punishment and no further payment required for sin. He fulfilled the law, and then he experienced the curse of the law in its entirety. And then thirdly, his bodily resurrection. If Christ was going to be the mediator that we need, he not only needed to fulfill the law and die under the law, but he also needed to be raised from the dead. There needed to be a bodily resurrection. Without the bodily resurrection, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then you and I have no hope at all. It's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, and in the next couple of verses. He says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who will have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, Paul is saying. Why is your faith worthless? If Christ has not been raised. Well, on the one hand, you have no evidence that the payment for sin was accepted and was sufficient. The resurrection of Christ declares that the payment was sufficient, that death and sin were overcome in the death of Christ. By his resurrection, he declared for all time, payment has been made in full. Forgiveness is offered. Life is given. And at the same time, by his resurrection of the dead, apart from his resurrection of the dead we would have no assurance that we would ever be raised from the dead. And if this life is all there is, and if we are hoping in a life to come that will never come, and if we're basing our whole existence on the hope of the resurrection and it doesn't even exist because Christ was never raised, then Paul says, you are are of all people most to be pitied for your pathetically hopeless hope, your pathetically empty hope, your vanity. There's nothing there. But because Christ was raised from the dead, we have the assurance sins have been forgiven and the resurrection is real. And we will one day experience the bodily resurrection from the dead as Jesus himself has. And then his ascension and intercession for us. He ascended to the right hand of God where he makes intercession for us according to Romans 8, verse 34. Christ has been exalted, having been raised from the dead, he has been exalted to the right hand of God. And he, he reigns there now as mediator, as king over all things in terms of his authority and his power. But he also reigns there at the right hand of God as the one who intercedes for us. So the one who is in the place of all power at the right hand of God is also the one who secures for us the salvation that he has purchased through his death. He is risen, he is reigning, and he is interceding for us right now in these moments. And then lastly, his return for judgment. Christ is mediator in the sense that he will one day return for judgment. This is one of the themes that comes up repeatedly in the New Testament in the apostles' preaching of the gospel. They didn't just emphasize the forgiveness of sins when they preached the gospel. And they didn't just emphasize the resurrection of Jesus Christ when they preached the gospel. Certainly they did both of those things. But they also emphasized the return of Christ in judgment. And that's something that we should take note of in our own evangelism. We, we 
tell people of the forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ because of his death and resurrection. And at the same time, we promise them Christ will return as mediator and as judge between God and man. According to Acts 10, one of the things Jesus ordered his apostles to preach, this is what Peter says, Jesus ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. What has God ordered the apostles to preach? That Jesus, as mediator, is judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17, in Paul's preaching, he says the same thing. God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world through the man that he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And so as mediator between God and man, Christ is not only the savior of those who believe, but he also mediates the justice of God and the judgment of God and the condemnation of God toward those who don't believe. The only basis on which you or I will ever escape that coming judgment and will be found in favor with God is through faith in this one mediator. Again, 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man. There is salvation in nobody else. As Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is salvation in no one else For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which you must be saved. There's no other name. There's no other salvation. There is one mediator, one savior, and you must believe in him. That is the application of this doctrine of the mediatorial role of Christ is believe in this one mediator. There is hope in nobody else. We don't have time to look at this final section, the redemption applied by the mediator. In fact, I didn't even plan to cover it tonight because I knew we wouldn't have time. And one of the reasons for that is because the rest, uh, a number of the remaining chapters of the confession as we go through uh, the different doctrines that are taught there, it'll cover most of this. And so there are a number of chapters that talk about the way that Christ applies his redemption as mediator. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. For now, Uh, I will suffice it to say, based uh, just as a summary of that section, that Christ, as mediator, never ceases to apply to your life as a believer every single one of the benefits which he has secured for you. There is never a moment of your life in which Christ is not applying to you all of his saving benefits as your mediator. And he does it all by grace. He is a gracious mediator. He has died for us in our place so that all of the merits of his saving work are now lavished on us incessantly by grace. So praise God then for the mediator that he has given, the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we do give you thanks for all that you have accomplished through the the mediator that you have appointed in your covenant of grace with us. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We confess that there is mystery there that we could never fully wrap our minds around, the mystery of Christ who is fully God and fully man in one person. And instead of trying to figure it out, God, we simply marvel at it and we worship the one who is our mediator as God and man the man Christ Jesus. We thank you for the understanding that you've given us by your Holy Spirit, through your word, and we pray that you would help us to believe 
wholeheartedly that there is no hope for us outside of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the assurance that we have because he is our prophet who makes you known to us, our priest who brings us to you, and our king who reigns over us with perfect righteous authority. We thank you for Christ our Lord. We pray that you would help us to worship him more and more with hearts full of sincerity and love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.